With three weeks before the midterms, the outlook for control of the U.S. Senate and possibly even the House remains as it's been for some time, a jump ball in which either party can yet prevail. But there is little doubt that there is growing anxiety among Democrats, with inflation, gas prices, and crime consistently ranking as the top concern among voters, outranking the fallout from January 6th or the alarming number of Republicans running for office who still endorse Donald Trump's election-denying nonsense. But are Democrats talking about the right issues and crafting their messages in ways that connect with that segment of the electorate that actually determines the outcome of elections? Veteran Democratic consultant Liz Smith says no, and she's got some advice for them in her new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. We'll talk to her about how she sees the midterms and what she's learned as a female advisor to a parade of Democrats, from John Edwards to Elliot Spitzer to Andrew Cuomo, all of whom had problems over their relationships with women on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So uh, it was uh, a lot of fun and really interesting to talk to uh, Liz Smith, who's kind of uh, made quite a few waves as a uh, Democratic consultant. She, of course, is most famously known as the uh, advisor for Pete Buttigieg in his um, race for president in 2020. But this is coming at a time, her book and her advice for Democrats comes at a time that, you know, as I mentioned, there's clearly a lot of jitteriness among the Democrats. Just in the last few weeks, you can sense it from talking to them. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking to Democratic consultants who said they thought they still had a chance of holding on to the House and thought they were favored to take the Senate. Uh, The polls in the last uh, few days seem increasingly gloomy for them, this New York Times poll, which on a generic ballot, R's versus um, D's, has the Republicans up 49-45 and Biden's approval rating down at 39%. Not good for an incumbent president and his party as they go into these midterms. Yeah, I mean, Liz Smith was certainly not being a uh, kind of a Pollyannish booster for the Democrats in our interview with her. So the conversation was pretty interesting. She reflected that concern. Um, she was pretty straight talking about some of these uh, close races that uh, Democrats are still hoping to eke out. Senate race in Nevada, for example. I think she said that the gubernatorial race in Arizona was pretty much gone. Kerry Lake was going to win win that. So yeah, the zeitgeist has definitely uh, shifted in the last couple of weeks. And Yahoo News has its new poll that it does with um, uh, YouGov just out, literally just out. And it reflects the same shifts uh, that you were mentioning before. I mean, a lot of it is the kind of intensity around the big issues that have been uh, dominating this uh, campaign all along. For a while, it looked like abortion, you know, really was going to be a huge motivator. And I think it still will be a a significant motivator for Democrats, you know, around um, 52% of them say, you know, it's the most important issue for them. But overall, in the poll, inflation leads all of the issues considerably. When you ask the question how important each issue is, 92% in the poll say inflation is either very or somewhat important. That's followed by crime at 89%. And then abortion lags uh, pretty far behind at 76%. So those are all challenges. And, And I guess there's a little bit of a sense that Maybe. And there's still there's still time. There's still time for for new shifts. But it's possible anyway that things kind of peaked a little too early for Democrats. And uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's 21 days before the election. And it also wouldn't be mid-October if the Democrats weren't freaking out about what's <laughs> what's going to happen. About it's, something. About the bad about letters, the bad and, letters. And in the uh, in the election. You know, that being said, I think the truth is, is that Democrats were kind of surprised and shocked at how well they were doing in August and September, because the fundamentals were always against them for this midterm. It's 
a midterm for a president and the the you know kind of party in power always lose seats in it plus add on to it the the clear inflation issues that are kind of vexing our economy and our nation and uh, it's really kind of shocking that the democrats were doing as well as they were in august and september you know, the thing is, is that everyone is kind of opening their their mortgage statement or their mortgage bill for October and November and probably having a little bit of a freak out at how much it's gone up. That's if they have an adjustable rate mortgage. So it's it's not surprising. So the, the combination of those adjustable rate mortgage increases going on and the crashing stock market. I don't open those like most people when the market's going down. I toss them away because I know it's going to be bad news and I don't want to be confronted with yeah. how much money I thought I had, which I no longer have. I know. Right. So I think that is as big a factor as any in it this is. Shift. It is. But yeah. the, the, you know, the stock market does not really is not a true measure <laughs> of the current state of the of the economy, but in terms of it's a measure of what's in people's minds, right? A, yeah. It's a measure exactly. of what's in your 401k too. Yeah, right. well, that's <laughs> yeah. the point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but that being that being said, I think there's something a little dodgy about a lot of the polls that we're reading right now. The New York Times poll that just came out literally showed, I think, a 32-point swing over the course of a month in terms of how independent women were looking at the election. In September, independent women favored Democrats by a 14-point margin. Now that it's October, they favor Republicans by an 18-point margin. A 32-point swing in one month is either a sign that something is really off about this poll or that the electorate is extraordinarily volatile, in which case 21 days can make all of the difference in the world for how this election turns out. How do you explain why the abortion issue, which, you know, a month or two ago, the Democrats thought was going to, they were going to be able to ride to victory, is not cutting in the way that they thought it would? I think that's the that's the point that I'm making about something being a little bit off about this this poll. It's not like you forget losing a constitutional right in a month and just to kind of get ho-hum about it. So I, I really do believe that it's still a potent issue. At, Danny, you know, said it's like, what, 76 percent of the electorate, you know, still continues to feel, feel it's very important. I, I would love to see that cut for women and cut for swing state independence. It's still a potent issue. And the other thing to remember is that Democrats are sitting on top of a massive wad of cash that they're going to spend on advertising in the next 21 days. And they're going to focus on these core issues that they think their voters, you know, really care about abortion, guns, climate. But the polls don't show that's what's top of the mind for most voters. So if they hit those issues, they may be, you know, speaking to a base that's going to vote for them anyway, but not necessarily you know, what's uh, top of the mind. By the way, your point good advertising about, <laughs> has a way of making things come to the top of the mind. <laughs> Maybe, but you know, just one point I I thought of when you mentioned, you know, people uh, losing their constitutional rights. Maybe if while getting their 401ks, they were also getting some notice of the standing of their constitutional rights and how they had declined in uh, recent months. Uh, exactly. That might have Your constitutional rights have mind. gone down by 20% in the last yeah, year. Exactly. <laughs> just before we move on, just since these uh, new poll numbers, Yahoo News poll numbers are just coming in, I do want to include a possible small silver lining for Democrats uh, out there who might be depressed listening to us, which is that in our poll, Biden's approval rating actually is uh, has ticked up a bit, quite a bit, particularly among re registered voters. But overall, uh, it's gone from 39 percent to 43 percent. And that's probably because it's coming into alignment with how voters have now decided they're going to vote, you know, in the sort of which party they're going to vote for. And if they're going to vote Democratic, they're also going to be more supportive of of Joe Biden. And that seems to be happening. Where, All right, but just very quickly, uh, yeah. in the end of the day, this is about individual races in individual states. And I think uh, we all agree that, you know, the two or three that people are, mo well, the two that people are probably most watching right now that will determine who controls the Senate is Georgia and Pennsylvania. And, you know, we had this debate between Warnock and Walker, Herschel Walker, the other night after 
after a week of Walker being pummeled over his the allegations that he paid for an abortion uh, of his ex-girlfriend, a contradiction of his position on being anti-abortion. Yet the reviews seem to be that Walker, perhaps because the bar had been set so low, did pretty well. And uh, actually, um, you know, according to some, like Frank Bruni in the New York Times today, uh, thought he actually won the debate. Yeah, I actually listened to it. I was driving. I thought he did win the debate in, you know, debates these days are not measured on debating points. They're they typically, you know, measured on, on expectations and whether you exceed them or don't exceed them. And I thought Herschel Walker got way over the bar that was uh, set for him, and partly because he did a pretty good job and his campaign did a pretty good job of lowering expectations. Because you watch clips of Walker speaking on on YouTube, yeah. on YouTube or Twitter, and he could barely complete a sentence. You could argue that <laughs> Herschel Walker has been lowering expectations since he announced his candidacy. Uh, yeah. But then he went into the debate saying, you know, I'm just a dumb country kid, and Warnock is, is a polished smooth talker. And uh, look, he he did what he needed to do. He hammered Warnock over and over again on, you know, his closeness to Biden. You know, how many times did he say he's voted with Biden 96% of the time, no matter how many times uh, Warnock tried to show that he had stood up uh, to Biden on, on you know, certain policy issues and, and legislation. But he did a good job of making it look like uh, Warnock was a rubber stamp. And I thought, and this was the thing that sort of my main takeaway, was that there were several occasions when Warnock was asked a question. These are questions that, you know, he and his campaign certainly would have anticipated. And he just was kind of weaselly. He didn't answer them directly because he didn't want to answer them uh, directly. And the three examples uh, were when the moderators asked whether he would support uh, Joe Biden running for a second term. What did Warnock say? He said, that's something I haven't spent yeah, a minute thinking about. Well, that's disingenuous. You know, who hasn't thought for a minute about whether Joe Biden is going to run for reelection? And then it was the same thing on on abortion, where given an opportunity and now really all Democrats have have done this, but given an opportunity to say, would they draw any limits on abortion? He dodged that question. And then the final one, a little bit more esoteric, but was uh, about whether he thought that uh, the Supreme Court should add add seats. And uh, he dodged that question again. In every one of those, just about every one of those moments, uh, Herschel Walker answered those questions pretty directly. Uh, and, and I think there was a contrast there that was not helpful to, to Warnock. Well, I have a small caveat to this entire discussion. If we've learned anything from recent elections, um, Debates don't determine the outcome of elections, and the polls are usually wrong. So, uh, Skullduggery listeners, please disregard everything we've said. Disregard everything except for the Skullduggery (laughs) punditry, because we are usually right. Wait a second. (laughs) We're usually right about everything. No, we've been citing (laughs) polls and debates, uh, which uh, usually are irrelevant to the outcome. In any case, we have a really good, interesting guest here. Unfortunately, uh, Victoria, you weren't able to join us for this interview, but I hope you'll listen. The guest is Liz Smith, the Democratic consultant. So let's get to it. We've now got with us Liz Smith, veteran Democratic political operative and author of the new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. Liz, welcome to Skullduggery. Uh, Longtime listener, thank you for having me. (laughs) The title of your book, Any Given Tuesday, seems a play on the old saying about the NFL, any given Sunday, any team could beat any other team. As you look at the the midterms right now, less than a month away, how's it looking for your side? And, you know, do you believe that any of these races uh, can go either way? Yeah. And I mean, it is sort of an apt title for this election cycle because, I mean, we've seen 
um, you know, I think every single, every two years I say, wow, this is the crazy selection cycle I have seen. I've never seen swings like this before. And it just happens to be really, really, really true for the 22 election cycle. You know, back in March, if we had been having this conversation, I would have said that the Democrats had no chance of holding the House or Senate. If you'd come to me, a month and a half ago, I would have said the Democrats are going to definitely hold the Senate, have a shot at the House. Now, sitting about four weeks out from the election, I feel like this election cycle is reverting a little bit more to mean and to how um, midterm elections traditionally play out, where I think, you know, Republicans, the, par the party out of power, will um, romp in the House will do pretty well in statewide, and that the Senate right now is looking 50-50. So I know it's not the most inspiring message, especially for Democrats, but I think we have just seen incredible swings due to things outside of really anyone's power or certainly any elected official's power, where whether it's the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Dobbs decision, inflation, gas prices. And so all of these sort of divine interventions are sort of have made this one of the most unpredictable election cycles of my lifetime. So the conventional wisdom, which we actually like to debunk on this show, is that the Democrats gained a lot from abortion being first and foremost in people's minds after the Dobbs decision, but that inflation and uh, the economy are sort of creeping back into the forefront. And if that's the case, that obviously helps the R's more than the D's. By the way, do you have any uh, uh, skin in the game in, in, in any races? Are you, uh, uh, I should have asked this straight out. Sure. So I actually just got back from Michigan. I was there for a few days. I am helping, I've, I've been helping out Mallory McMorrow, who's a complete star there. And she's working to flip the Michigan State Senate. Um, you know, I've worked at all level of politics, and I think that this was a really fascinating. The Michigan State Senate is the one, our best opportunity really to flip a legislative chamber in 2022. So I have been spending some time in Michigan working on uh, helping to bring attention to that and to state legislative races in general, because for as much as Democrats talk about threats to democracy, threats to women's right to choose. You know, the biggest threats to those things are happening at the state level. And I think it's really important that Democrats start putting our money as. Yeah. I mean, just to finish my question uh, and also bring it around to Michigan. I mean, do you, you sort of buy into the CW, as we used to call it at Newsweek, on the shift in voters concerns? And since you brought up Michigan, like one of the key house races that a lot of people are watching out there is uh, Elise Slotkin, Democrat in Michigan, former CIA uh, officer. And I think a lot of people are looking at that as kind of a bellwether about where things go. How does it uh, look to you right now? Yeah, so, well, I mean, Michigan is really fascinating because it is one of those states that is a bellwether for um, elections and is a swing state, right? I, I think a lot of the prognosticators this in 2022, in November and a month from now are gonna be looking toward Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, but Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, Michigan are sort of seen as sort of the traditional swing states and uh, walls for Democrats in presidential years. So they get all eyes will be on states like Michigan. As for Alyssa Slotkin, my God, I must have seen 200 ads in that race when I was in the suburbs of Detroit. So um, clearly, there's a ton of money pouring into that district right now. I think she's uh, she's up a few points and is in a very good position. But if someone like that starts to go south, that's when you know that it could be um, potentially a bad year for Democrats. The one thing that I do feel 
sort of sets Michigan apart and insulates it a bit from the situation some of these other states are in is that you do have an abortion ballot initiative that is people will be voting for, right? There is a 1931 law that outlaws abortion under all under all cases. There are no exceptions. And so the Michigan Democrats and pro-choice community got an initiative on the ballot to um, overturn it. So that abortion will literally be on the ballot. And so it's not going to fade from people's minds like it might in other states. But when you talk, when I've talked to people who are in swing states, who are in swing districts, the things that I've heard from them that keep them up at night are gas prices. And, you know, last week we saw OPEC come out and say that um, I, can't, I can't remember the technical wording of it, but essentially that they were going to uh, reduce how much oil that they were releasing, which would then increase ostensibly lead to an increase in gas prices. But the other thing, and this is something that I think we really need to keep our eyes on, but again, there's not much we can really do about it, is a surge in COVID pre-election day. And um, I've been hearing stories just out of New York and other states that all of the same indicators that were there for before Omicron and before you know COVID hit initially are out there again. And that should be keeping Democratic strategists up at night as well. Okay, since uh, you mentioned the Senate being 50-50, that could go down to the wire, let's have you just handicap uh, some of those key races. Because right now, it looks like the Democrats are still a little bit ahead in in Pennsylvania in the um, Oz-Fetterman race. They, you know, are are doing well in Arizona. Uh, Mark Kelly is up there. Nevada is much iffier. Uh, So is Wisconsin. And then there's Georgia, which some people think... It could all come down to Georgia once again and possibly in a runoff. So assess those races, where you think things stand and what you think the outcome likely will be. So I I agree that it will. And this is me saying this today, and I understand things can really change on a dime. And we've really, really, really seen that in this election. I do think it will come down to Georgia and that Georgia is likely to go to a runoff, which is, I know, shocking, especially after all the Herschel Walker news coming out recently. And more could come out and we could see Warnock creep over 50. We just not we haven't seen him over 50 in any of the recent polls. He's been up. But in Georgia, to avoid a runoff, you've got to be over 50. And it seems like the Republican base is, is holding strong with Herschel Walker and the Republican establishment certainly is. But so I think we if I had to bet today, I would say that we pick up Pennsylvania, we lose Nevada, we hold Arizona, we narrowly we end up holding Georgia in after a runoff, um, we lose Wisconsin. And so we end up again with a 50-50 Senate. And um, you, you mentioned- <laughs> I know, I, it's, And this changes- What a drag. <laughs> if you would ask me this three yeah. weeks ago, I would have given you a different answer. And you know what? The, the beauty of any given Tuesday is that things can change. And who knows? There could be some bombshells. There could be some October surprises. But it really does seem like this election cycle is reverting to mean. And it that means that the party that's in power is going to take a little bit of a beating at the polls. And we are going to get into the book in just a second because oh, there's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot to talk about. But one just one quick follow up question. In terms of non-federal races, gubernatorial races, you've worked for a lot of governors. Uh, you worked, I think, for Martin O'Malley when he was uh, when he ran the Democratic Governors Association. There are a lot of big governors' races, which sometimes get less attention. What are the races that you're looking at, and what are the stakes? Right, and it drives me nuts. Right, and I think one thing that everyone needs to learn, and I've been shouting this from the rooftops for over a decade now, or 12 years. No, actually, I've worked on gubernatorial races since 2019, so 13 years, but sorry, 2009. One thing that we need to learn is that state races are so, so, so important, whether they're gubernatorial races, whether they're attorney general races, whether they're now secretary of state races, right? Secretary of state races and state legislature races. You know, if um, the Supreme Court does, you know, take up the case that will affect the independent state, you know, the independent state legislature stuff, then that will have a great impact on our elections. But I'm not going to go too 
far down that rabbit hole. I'm going to answer your question about gubernatorial races. So the key ones that, that are coming up is, you know, we've got Whitmer in Michigan, Evers in Wisconsin. Um, those are two Democratic incumbents. I think that both will probably squeak it out. In terms of open seats, we've got Arizona. I think Carrie Lake, the Republican who is an election denier and as Trumpy as they get is likely to win that one. Unfortunately, the Democrat there has not been running the strongest of campaigns. That's Katie so Hobbs. We, yeah, Katie, Katie Hobbs. Hobbs. Yeah. You know, she's refused to debate Carrie Lake. And, you know, the buzz around her campaign is just is not good. And Carrie Lake, whether you like her or not, I certainly do not. I share no overlap with her politics. You do have to have respect for someone who goes out and engages daily with voters, engages daily with the media. And she's sort of an outlier in the MAGA crew in that most of them do not want to answer tough questions. Most of them do not want to engage with the media and they talk about the fake news. And sure, she'll do that sort of kabuki theater at um, press conferences, but she engages, you know, the heck out of both local and national media. And that's where maybe her background as a local news anchor helps. We are in real trouble in the Nevada governor's race. Um, So that is a potential Um, loser for us. I think Georgia looks like it's going to stick with Brian Kemp for governor, which is a shame because Stacey Abrams is, you know, um, such a dynamo. And the other big race, the other big races I'm looking at are Pennsylvania. We've got Josh Shapiro there, who's running a great campaign. He early on just went out there and aggressively defined himself as someone who is not going to be you know, called a defund the policer and, you know, ran on his sort of law enforcement background. It also helps that he is running against one of the most feckless MAGA candidates in the country, Doug Mastriano, you know, someone who in his, you know, for, I, I don't know if I can cuss on this. Um, you podcast. can absolutely okay. encourage someone who, for, someone who for shits and giggles dresses up in like Confederate garb, you know, and is just he's just one running one of the most sad sack campaigns out there. But he is one of the more dangerous candidates because in Pennsylvania, the governor can appoint the secretary of state. And he has been unabashed in saying that he believes the 2020 election was stolen and he would appoint a secretary of state who, if the 2024 election went for Democrats, would help overturn the election. But the other bad news I have is in Oregon, Democrats um, chances seem to be going south there you know, for a variety of reasons. But the, we are at uh, we're, you know, at a big risk of losing that governor. I mean, Biden's I think I read that Biden's going out there to try to turn things around there, which is pretty amazing that he has to go to Oregon. Right. Well, that's one of those. And that's one of those races where Biden is an asset in the midterms. You know, generally, the I think that presidents should stay should be busy washing their hair, you know, all during the mid all during the um, midterm cycle. And it's not anything that's unique to Biden. It certainly applied to Barack Obama, both in 2010 and 2014. It applied to Donald Trump in 2018. Is that midterm the party empowered does best when the candidates can run local races, run their own races, dissociate themselves from the national party. But Biden is definitely an asset in Oregon. But, you know, in Oregon, I just, you know, we're seeing house races shift away from us there. So it's I don't want to be all doom and gloom today, but I think it's it's best that we're realistic about how things are shaping up. And um, no, no, doom and gloom. That's Isikoff's brand. So this is perfect. But it speaks to the need for Democrats really in these last four weeks to go out and really aggressively define the choice that voters face, because the Democrats who have done that well, the Mark Kelly's of the world, the Josh Shapiro's are the ones who are doing really, really well. The ones who just sort of coasted and thought, okay, well, I can deal with I'm not going to try to define myself. I'm not going to talk about defund the police are like people like Mandela Barnes, John Fetterman, and they're the people who are now sort of sinking in the polls a bit. But I think barring a disastrous debate performance that Fetterman should be able to hold on. I do have to ask you in light of your last answer, if you've ever advised any of the candidates you were working for that they should stay busy doing their hair. (laughs) (laughs) Or perhaps def- not in those words. But, right. Yeah. I have I have advised. Look, in some elections, I've definitely advised candidates I work for to 
divorce their brand from the national brand and to keep their distance you know, from the president, from national Democrats. But um, no, I generally, I advise the candidates I work for to go out and really- And do their hair and, before right, they exactly. go out. Right, right. No, no, yeah. no. But, but, you know, it's just it's just really, really important is even, I, th- I do think that Democrats got a little bit complacent over the summer. And we saw the election results coming out of Kansas. We saw the special election in New York. We thought, oh my God, you know, all the money's pouring in, all the energy's- and momentum is on our side. And we didn't realize that there was a, still a long time between then and November. But it's it, it's just really important that Democrats go out and fight like hell between now and the election. So uh, on that point, you have gotten some attention for advising Democrats, telling Democrats they become too enamored of the sort of progressive woke agenda that is not where the most Americans are. Elaborate on that and be specific about this, where you think specific examples of where Democrats have gotten too into the woke agenda stuff. So I never, one thing I, I, I'll just reject is I never use the term woke. I try to avoid using any terms that have been sort of co-opted and um, bastardized by people like Tucker Carlson. But I do think that, yes, that Democrats have gotten a little bit too sucked into trying to check pro- check off progressive litmus tests and satisfy them, that they have gotten a little bit out of touch with the electorate. And a couple examples that I point to is I point to Mandela Barnes, for instance, in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a quintessential swing state. And one of the reasons why he is getting just raked over the coals against someone as unlikable, unpopular as Ron Johnson. Like Ron Johnson should have been target number one for Democrats in terms of Republican incumbents in the Senate. Um, you know, this is a guy who spread COVID conspiracy theories, a guy who still to this day diminishes what happened on January 6th. He was, you know, alleged to have been part of this fake elector scheme. And so he was definitely on the menu for Democrats uh, going into November. But Mandela, he's been successful at, you know, really beating the crap out of Mandela Barnes because Mandela Barnes subscribed to, you know, what I sort of talk about as the progressive hashtag politics of, you know, associating himself with um, sort of idiotic slogans like defund the police, like abolish ICE. And there are certain far lefty groups that for their endorsement, they want you to endorse these things. And that's just not where the electorate is. It certainly it might satisfy people, you know, at these think tanks or nonprofits, but is not like looking at whether you're in New York, whether you're in Michigan, whether you're in Wisconsin, you're appealing to, um, you know, less than 30 percent of the electorate when you're talking about issues like that. So I point to that. You know, we were just talking about Oregon. I think there I, I was reading yesterday that Democrats are really, really concerned about a Biden plus 30 teen district there, House district there, where, um, you know, an Elizabeth Warren endorsed candidate is at risk of losing because, you know, she is seen as, quote unquote, too progressive and has embraced policies that are just a non-starter. And that is a D plus 13 district, a Biden plus 13 district. Sorry, I apologize for my cats. For some reason, whenever I go on podcasts, I think it's like WWE hour. But yeah, I just look, I think it's really smart for candidates to understand who they are, who they're trying to represent, and that these like this hashtag politics is not popular among voters as a whole. And it's especially not helpful among the most loyal parts of our base, which is like black women and you know black voters in general. And we've seen it be very, very alienating with both black and Latino voters when candidates do embrace um, policies that are you know way outside the mainstream. So you made your name as a media strategist and, um, you know, crafting messages and getting your clients' stories and narratives out there. And you famously worked for Pete Buttigieg. So one of the things that you write about in the book uh, is about his media strategy. Now, uh, I think we got to acknowledge that you had a client who was a master communicator. So that was yes, definitely yeah, yeah, an, yeah. an advantage uh, for you. But what you... 
uh, advised him to do and what he ultimately did is very different from what a lot of other Democratic candidates do, which is you talked about flooding the zone and getting him out there in front of all kinds of audiences, all kinds of media outlets, including places like Barstool, TMZ, Playboy, and famously Fox News, right? You know, which people might have been surprised about at first, but I think then Democrats were cheering him because there were not a lot of Democrats on Fox who were actually making the case. So talk a little bit about uh, why you think Democrats don't do that more often uh, and why it's important. I thought you were going to say famously skullduggery, but I'm <laughs> well, trying to think- th- well, actually, <laughs> we tried to get him on the podcast during the campaign and failed. Because uh, he's become he too hot. No, no, no. We we had we had him booked. We thought we had him booked, and then he started getting all this national press coverage. Yeah, and you ditched us basically. Like. Right, I, I we missed like the moment. I feel like he did it during the general election, though, if I recall correctly. He, no, he, he, did, he did it, it no. as Secretary of Transportation. Because I remember talking with his team about him doing skullduggery. So, we look, we got him on. It, it might have taken a little bit. but <laughs> Is I think there a to... tape of that discussion, by the way? Yeah. I'd no, like no. to hear the, <laughs> we are, <laughs> the we gaming. Are very... Should we do this one or not? No, right. no we are very pro uh, uh, skullduggery over here. And so I'm just glad that we got him on there. And, you know, a secretary of transportation, I think, is more prestigious than just one of the 100 people running for president. So, well, look, I think it was re- you, you hit the nail on the head that it's not a strategy that would work for everyone. And nor is it a strategy that everyone should try to emulate because if you are not ready to push back on some of the bad faith on attacks on Fox and make a you know strong democratic case or liberal case on Fox News, then you probably shouldn't be going on there. If you cannot talk about the latest that's going on with Kim and Kanye, you should probably not be going on TMZ. But what was great about Pete was he was someone who really thrives in the um, interview format. And I think is Democrats best communicator in this sort of interview and town hall format. You know, there's some people who thrive giving speeches, who can really inspire people, people like Barack Obama. Pete's strength is really in being able to just, you know, just nail interviews. And with Fox, I think it was really important for a few reasons. One, look, he's really good on there. And we wanted to go on Fox because we know that there are still a significant number of Democrats that watch Fox. And that could be a niche for us in the Democratic primary, especially in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, where on caucus day or on primary day, Republicans could come in and caucus for a Democrat or vote for a Democrat. Um, So we were reaching people who could come out and show their support for Pete. And I think that um, we saw the fruits of that. Um, We saw the rewards of that strategy when we saw him do very, very well in red rural areas of Iowa on caucus day when he, um, you know, they didn't call it that day, but a few days later when they called it in his favor. It was also important for us symbolically because one of the things that Pete wanted to signal in that campaign was that he was going to be the opposite of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was someone who only communicated and only tried to appeal to the most narrow part of his base and otherwise said, fuck you to the rest of American voters. He was not going to go on media outlets that didn't share his worldview. You know, you didn't you he didn't go on, for instance, like CNN once when he was president and he almost you know, he limited himself completely to prime time at Fox and Fox and Friends. And so it was important to show that Pete would be a president who would be a president for everyone. And how one of the ways that you show that is by showing up and talking to people who might disagree with you. And, you know, I think it is the sometimes the height of disrespect and the height of arrogance when politicians say, well, I'm not going to go on this news outlet because it doesn't share my worldview or I'm not going to go on this outlet because I'm too good for for it. So, you know, and that certainly applies to things like Barstool or TMZ. And when Pete goes on there, it signals to people that this is a guy who's who's willing to meet you where you are, who's not going to turn up his nose at you. And frankly, that's how I think Democrats can put can get through, break through some of the noise and reach not only just persuadable Republican voters, but reach voters who 
aren't regular voters. And we sometimes in politics have this view that there's like a binary choice for people. You either vote Republican or you vote Democrat. What we oftentimes forget is that the easiest option of all for people is not to vote at all. And that is going to be our biggest obstacle, especially going into the midterm elections, is voter apathy. And the way that we combat voter apathy is, yes, we get results for people that inspire them, but we make sure that we are communicating directly with them. And oftentimes the way that we're going to communicate directly with voters is not by just going on in sort of our safe spaces and our comfortable pod- political podcasts. It's making sure that we are hitting non-traditional news sources as well. And I think um, that's one thing that Pete was very good at in the presidential election and continues to be really good at you know, at DOT, you do see him popping up in a lot of places that you would not expect a transportation secretary to be popping up in. So in reading your book, one thing that leapt out at me was um, the various candidates you have worked for, been involved with, John Edwards, Elliot Spitzer, Andrew Cuomo. They all have in common (laughs) one thing. (laughs) They've all had problems with women. So, look, if I were your therapist, which I'm not, I would ask you two questions. Uh, Number one, is there a pattern here? And the second question is, does this explain how you ended up advising the first openly gay presidential (laughs) candidate? (laughs) That is a good one. I love it. Um, I love it. Well, okay, let's be very clear about one thing. With John Edwards, I I was on the 2004 campaign. And I was about as, I was a volunteer intern. I was in a student group for him at, at Dartmouth College. So I was not exactly a senior advisor to him. Let's put, I was not you in the were room. Actually, I think it's more like the opening anecdote in your book. You were a rat fucker. Yeah, right. right, right, right. When you were so, 20 years old at Dartmouth, you, you did a, a political stunt what, There's a long tradition briefly, of that at Dartmouth, Just very briefly tell that story because <laughs> yeah. I thought it was an I thought it was a great story. Yeah, no, it was. So I was an intern for him, and I had taken off a term, and I was um, knocking on doors for him in Keene, New Hampshire, in December and January of you know 20, 2003, 2004, which is, I mean. Anyone who spends time in Keene, New Hampshire in January 2004, you understand that you're knocking doors in like 15 degree weather. But I mean, he did not do particularly well in that area. So and I got a call one day from someone on his press team in New Hampshire saying Wes Clark is doing a town hall in Peterborough. We need someone to go there and to sandbag him, which is, you know, a synonym, I guess, of, of to rat fuck him or whatever. And what Coin they want term to be- by Donald Segretti, right? Uh, um, yeah. And Roger Stone. Were yeah. Roger Stone yeah. of, were I hope r- never to be fuckers. used in the same same sentence as Roger Stone. But they wanted me to go there and just ask him. This is when, you know, for anyone who doesn't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the 2004 presidential primary. That was a very topsy-turvy race. But Wes Clark had gotten in sort of at the last minute, I think in September of 2003. And he had this very non-traditional background. You know, he'd been the um, uh, head of NATO. He'd been or a four-star general in NATO. and But he came into the race as someone who opposed the Iraq war and was really surging in... New Hampshire at the time. And so they wanted me to go there and ask him a question about some of his, you know, questionable lobbying activities, right? After he had left the military, he'd become, you know, a lobbyist, I think, for big corporations, foreign governments, things like that. And so they wanted um, me to ask him a question like that in front of the national media and the 900 plus people who are at the Peterborough town hall. So I get there and, you know, This is my first this is my first time, obviously, really being face to face with a presidential candidate. And, you know, when they opened the floor to questions, I raised my hand. I'm trying to get called on. I'm on the ground floor of the Peterborough, the historic like sort of town hall there. He's not calling on me. I run upstairs, try to raise my hand, run back downstairs. And finally, he just his eye catches mine and he calls on me. And, you know, I'm like a 20 year old college girl. You're probably not expecting me to ask like some devastating question like I'm Michael Isikoff or something. (laughs) And, you know, I started out innocently enough, like, 
God, you know, General Clark, I have the utmost respect for your military service, but I want to know how you square that with your record of, of, uh, you know, lobbying for the most, some of the most brutal dictators and regimes. And as soon as the, I get to the, butt, you see the like nice smile on his face shift to, uh, like a, oh my God, I'm going to fuck kill you look on his face because he, he realizes exactly what had happened and when i was leaving the town hall of course i've got all this adrenaline coursing through me and one of his staffers turns to me and is like tell them you did a good job and you know he can't he doesn't know what campaign i'm with but he knows that i probably like wasn't a Peterborough voter there that day. So it was really fun. And it's, you know, it's sort of a tradition in politics. You send trackers to, to candidate, to ca- candidates events, to catch them on video and you send volunteers and supporters to try to get them on the record on tough questions like that. So yeah, so that was that. All story. right. Well, back, right, to, back question, to my question. Psychoanalyzing the, yourself. Uh, <laughs> so I can't the, filibuster. The I'm happy, women I'm happy problems to talk about I was trying to help you out there, Liz. <laughs> No. Yeah. But so, yeah. So I would say the Edward situation there was a little different with Elliot and who, you know, full disclosure, like later on ended up being my boyfriend and Andrew, I think that they were, that was more an issue of sort of what was seen as uh, putting the woman side, woman's stuff aside, which is a big thing to put aside is that they're both very strong personalities. And I think there was a belief in New York politics for a while that to succeed, you had to sort of be this hard charger that you had to be sort of a bully. And I think that was a big part of both of their downfalls, which is that they, in addition to, you know, very different scandals that they both had to deal with. They were people who ended up leaving office with many more enemies than they had friends. And that they were people who, frankly, over time, I think really um, lost touch with why they were in government in the in the first place and um, treated their colleagues like dirt. And so when, you know, when they got in trouble, there was no one left to stand up for them. But you you were, in fact, it's the opening scene in your book, uh, advising Andrew Cuomo how to uh, help spin his way out of his mm-hmm. sexual harassment problems, which ultimately forced him to resign. Talk about that a bit. And um, obviously, he was not open to when you and others concluded he had no real way of getting out of the situation he was in. Yeah. So I got pulled in to, so I had consulted for him during his 2018 reelection, both his primary and his general. He had a primary from, you know, the activist and um, actress Cynthia Nixon. And then he had a general election against Mark Molinaro. He romped in both of them, but I'd gotten to know him a little bit during that campaign. And I'd kept in touch with him during Pete's 2020 presidential race. And, you know, ironically, and he was the first person that suggested to me that I write a book. I bet he is somewhat regretting that advice now. But in March of 2021, he and his top advisors to call me in because he had been accused of sexually harassing a former state government employee. And I had said, yeah, yes, I will. Sure. I'm, I'm here. I'm happy to give advice because he vigorously denied the claims, you know, said that, and there never been any hint of, you know, sort of me too, or sexual harassment or any of that around him in the past. Was he seen as a bully? Could he be seen as a bully? Absolutely. But going back to what I said before, you know, that's not really, that doesn't make him really an outlier in New York politics, but he had gone out there and he had championed, been a champion on Me Too and never so much as a whisper about any of this stuff. So I also viewed him as someone that I trusted as a mentor, as a father figure, as all of those things. And so, of course, when people get in trouble, it is I try to be the person that is there for them, not the person that runs away from them, because they're when it comes to sort of cut and run artists, there are a lot of those people in politics and I never, ever want to be one of those people. But over time, you know, it was like then a week later, another allegation came out and he vigorously denied it again. But then a week later, you know, uh, another allegation comes out. And at some point it's like that old saying, like, fool me once, 
shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. And then it's like, fool me three times. Well, and I think I have, I say some sort of version of that in the book, but what was very clear was that he had led us all down this path where he was not being forthright with us. And the number one rule when, when you are dealing with the crisis is that you've got to be brutally honest about everything that could come out with you, with the people who are advising you. Otherwise they're not going to be able to give you, you know, good advice and tell you what you need to do. But, you know, one of the big tragedies in all of this was, you know, you know, he's out there saying the big tragedy was that he had to resign, you know, bullshit, you know, outside of, you know, the women who um, you came forward and had, certainly some of their own names dragged through the mud. He, one of the tragedies were all the people who put their time, their reputations on the line for a guy who couldn't have cared less about them and who lost their jobs, who lost their livelihoods, who had to shut down firms. And, you know, a big lesson when I was writing this chapter, I called a lot of those people sort of to process what was happening because I had to get this book in, you know, in the months after he resigned and it, his resignation coincided like it was he resigned a week before my dad passed away. So I was like dealing with all this sort of stuff that was going on. And so I had to call a lot of my former colleagues and figure out how to process this stuff. And the one thing that we realized is that loyalty really in politics needs to be a two way street. And it was just hard for all of us not to feel like he had taken advantage of our loyalty and played on it and, and tried to say, you know, we need to be there for him when he clearly had no interest in being there for us. He was just using us to try to get through a scandal where he wasn't even giving us the truth. So, uh, so you brought up the relationship with Elliot Spitzer, and, and yeah. we should say, by the way, that when you had that relationship with him, he had left his wife. Uh, yes. It wasn't, you point out, it was not an affair. He right. was your, he was your boyfriend, as you put yes. it. But, um, so here you are, someone who uh, had, you know, battled the, the tabloids on behalf of your, uh, your clients, and now you're directly in the crosshairs of the New York Post and and the Daily News. And, you know, it was obviously a searing personal and professional experience for you, which you write about very movingly with a lot of insight. uh, And people should buy this book and, you know, read the whole thing. But that chapter is really compelling. But I want to ask you about what you learned uh, from that uh, that experience, because it there's an interesting arc that you write about a kind of, you know, in your, your sort of personal and, and psychological development from that time to when you work for or for Mayor Pete. And I think, let me, from the book, you say, you do better if you make people feel secure in who they are. Uh, he was right. He saw me for who I actually was. And for the first time in my adult life, I did too. So what did you mean by that? So it was very difficult for me, you know, going through all of that. Just, you know, quick backstory was I was, so I consulted for Elliot on his 2013 race for New York City Comptroller. He didn't end up winning. I went on to um, immediately started working for Bill de Blasio as he was in the general election for New York City mayor. And I started out as his traveling spokesperson. Then I became his chief spokesperson and I was on track to be his chief spokesperson in City Hall. While I'm working for Bill de Blasio, i had a relationship with a personal relationship with Elliot that, you know, we had kept private and, you know, (laughs) I'd talk about just sort of, we were going through the basic steps of a relationship where you introduce, you know, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sister, as terrifying as it must sound to my boyfriend, who at the time was Elliot Spitzer and I was meeting his family and we were sort of working our way up to, you know, going more public with our relationship. But we didn't have that opportunity because the New York Post turned out, got wind of it and they were staked outside my apartment and got photos of him leaving it one morning. And so, you know, overnight I go from wow, I'm I'm about to be the chief spokesperson for the mayor of New York City. All of my dreams are maybe coming true. Little did I know it was sort of a blessing in, in disguise because I think that would not have been a great career development for me to then being 
all over the front, you know, the front pages, what we call the wood here in New York of the Daily News and New York Post with the most horrific headlines being written about me. Um, you know, the New York Post had one about me that said, ho, ho, ho. The Daily News made multiple puns about my legs on the. So I'd gone from being a well-respected to professional to being essentially someone who was judged, um, you know, based, described in the most misogynistic of terms. And I'd gone from someone who had been behind the scenes to suddenly someone who was, you know, the target of all of these attacks. And it is one thing to be advising someone because you can sort of be a little bit emotionally divorced from the reality of this to being someone who was, you know, really under the microscope. And it did really show me how isolating and how, you know, uh, psychologically scarring some of these things can be. It made me in, in a lot of ways better at my job because, and it, it helps me with candidates when they would ultimately be under that microscope, when they'd be facing scandals of their own to be able to say, Hey, this is what it's going to be like. And I could talk to members of their family as well and say, you know, just understand this is a one, two, two, three, four day thing. And just keep your head down. The press will move on and it doesn't define you. And, or I could also tell them, Hey, make sure don't go out of your house today because they're going to be um, pho photographers waiting for you. So it gave me some empathy in that sense and ability to speak to a politician more on their level versus as like an advisor who'd never been through it. But I would be lying if I said that some of the attacks didn't get to me and didn't sort of stay with me over the years and make me question my judgment. And sure, I, I think it's fair. I think everyone should question their judgment. And that's totally fair. But I think, you know, the, some of the stuff that I faced made me question my my abilities and made me question whether some of these things that these these awful things that these newspapers were saying about me, whether they were true or not. But ultimately, with Pete's campaign, there I was, I helped take 37 year old openly gay mayor um, of a town of uh, 100,000 people from being, you know, sort of seen as a total joke or nothing or nobody in the presidential race to being, you know, the guy who won the Iowa caucuses came in the closest second place in New Hampshire primary history. And became and a household name, even though you can't pronounce his name. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so it sort of validated that, no, those things about me didn't define me and what the papers said about me weren't true. And that they could call me all those things, but I could also be very good at my job and very, very smart person as well. But I would be I would be lying if I if I said that I didn't take away some of the wrong lessons from that. And that's what I try to get into in the Cuomo sections. Because one of the things I wanted to do when I set out to write this book was to write a book that was brutally honest. And a lot of the times when you read political books, like Jared Kushner's comes to mind, people are always magically always the smartest person in the room. They are the ones who always have the most brilliant decisions. They're never wrong. They're the savior. They're the ones saying, but no, we should have done this. And I realized that if I was going to go out and tell the truth about politicians, all of their strengths and all of their shortcomings, I would have to do the same about myself. Otherwise, you know, why would anyone read it? No one wants to read some self glorifying BS. And I sort of bring that after sort of the beauty and the lift of the Pete part where Pete sort of um, helped see me who I for who I was for the first time as, you know, a talented professional. I saw that I'd taken away some of the wrong lessons in working with Cuomo, which was that when I was going through all of the scandal with the Post, the Daily News, you know, just attacking me, saying these awful things about me, I lost some really good friends. I lost people, I lost political allies. You know, people who had been, always been there for me suddenly were nowhere to be found. And there were days where I just felt just completely full of despair. Like I was completely isolated and like it was me versus the world. And that that experience stayed with me through the rest of my life. And I had decided I am never going to be that person who just ditches someone because they're going through some adversity, because they're going through some crisis, because they've got some bad headlines. But I think I took that a little bit too far with the Cuomo situation, because you've got to, to be able to take a step back and analyze it more objectively and not just view every situation 
through your own lens and the lens that loyalty is the ultimate virtue and that sticking by people is the most honorable thing because it, it isn't in every case. And I ultimately learned that lesson. And I want other people, whether they're in PR or politics, to be able to read my story and be able to take away the, the good and the bad from it. So to wrap up here, I want to return to national politics because the day after Election Day, regardless of how the midterms turn out, there's going to be one big question on the Democratic side. Is Joe Biden running for re-election? And a secondary question, which I'll ask you is, should he run for re-election? Well, I think the I think there are going to be some more questions after Election Day, but I agree that those will, depending on how it turns out, right? I think Democrats are going to have to look at what candidates we ran, how they performed, all of that, and what lessons we can take away. And uh, Democrats sometimes take away the right lessons, oftentimes take away the the wrong lessons. But um, yes, there's no doubt that that will be a big question um, after Election Day. And I do expect Joe Biden to run for re-election, and I do think he should run for re-election. And why? And you don't just have to say that because you were so closely identified with Pete Buttigieg, who is commonly thought of as an alternative if the president doesn't run for re-election. Completely fair question. And the answer is no. And, you know, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty I speak my mind and I'm not great when I'm not speaking my mind and I'm not here to spin you guys on this. And and it's the number of people who've asked me that is too many to count. But why I think Joe Biden for, should run for real election is this. One, his numbers are either the same or slightly better than where Barack Obama's were, Bill Clinton's were at this time in the midterms in 92, 2010. I ended up working for Barack Obama on his 2012 election, where he ended up winning pretty handily over Mitt Romney. So, and I remember a time when after the 2020 midterms where Democrats got absolutely shellacked. And I don't expect these midterms to be um, as bad as the 2010 midterms that there are columnists out there saying, well, maybe Barack Obama should pack it up and let someone like Hillary Clinton be at the top of the ticket, which is, which is a little funny to read in retrospect, given everything that we know now. So it is very possible, I think, for um, fortunes to change because, you know, the same dynamics that help dictate a midterm where um, voters take out their frustration on the party in power can soon turn against um, the party that ultimately wins power. And what we saw in um, 2012 was that uh, Democrats didn't like Democrats, independents, persuadables didn't like the direction that the Republican majority was taking us and took that out on them in 2012, but that we were able to run a really, really, really aggressive campaign against Republican nominee Mitt Romney in 2012 and make it a choice election. And so if 2024 plays out as, you know, I would predict, which is that it looks like Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. We know that Joe Biden's been able to beat him in the past, and I would feel comfortable with him being able to beat him in the future. Isn't the bigger question, though, look, I mean, President Biden will be an octogenarian if he is reelected. He'll be an octogenarian either way, but he'll be an octogenarian, octogenarian in office. And I just from the Democratic Party perspective, I mean, we still have Nancy Pelosi as the leader in the House, Chuck Schumer in the Senate. I mean, a lot of really old people are leading your party right now. And isn't that something that, you know, Democrats ought to be thinking long and hard about? Absolutely. We definitely need more new blood in our party. And it is time, I think, for a lot of people in these leadership positions to begin handing the baton to the next generation. I just think it's a little bit different in the case of President Biden. It would be pretty unprecedented for someone not to run for a president not in his position not to run for president. And I know that a lot of people say, well, his age is a factor. Is he going to be able to campaign? Is he going to be able to govern? And I would just sort of quote him and what he says in these interviews. Well, watch me. And a lot of people would not have been able to 
predict the last six months that he was able to have in Washington. He got through the inflation. He signed the Inflation Reduction Act. He signed, you know, the burn pits legislation. He signed the CHIPS Act, which is going to you know, massively increase uh, U.S. Man- manufacturing jobs. He signed into law a, a big infrastructure package, something that both Democrats and Republicans have been talking about for a long time. He um, took out the number one of Al Qaeda. What we have seen is that his age has not limited his ability to govern. And I really think his ability to govern is is the number one most important thing, um, both in terms of him serving as president and him running for re-election. Because if he's able to run for re-election and point to all of these results, then it is going to be harder for Republicans to beat him. And just generally, it is tougher to run against an incumbent president than it is to run for an open seat. And another thing I always caution Democrats is, you know, that old saying is the the devil, you know, is better than, you know, whatever. It's like the Democrat, you know, in this situation could be better than the alternative. And I never underestimate the ability of both Democrats and Republicans to nominate unelectable people. And I would take the certainty of knowing that of who of knowing who Joe Biden is, what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are over the uncertainty of Democrats going in a completely different direction and nominating someone that is unelectable in a general election. And so for those reasons, I do think that Joe Biden can win. And I think what, one thing that I, I like about Joe Biden is when he's a little bit untethered from the constraints of the White House, when he's not in the Rose Garden, and when he's just sort of Uncle Joe out there in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. And I, I still do think that he has an ability to connect with a lot of Democrats and a lot of swing voters and persuadable voters in a way that a lot of Democrats still struggle with and that we need to learn more from him before moving on from him. Okay. With all that said, if Biden doesn't run, should we expect to see another Buttigieg candidacy with you advising him? So I look, I, I do not speak for Mayor Pete or Secretary Pete. Secretary I guess in this Pete case. now. You know, I think the future is open for him. And I certainly hope that 2020 was not the last presidential race for him, because I think someone like our our nation could benefit from someone as talented, service oriented as he is as president. But, you know, I guess stay tuned. We'll see. But my hope is whenever we next have an open presidential primary for Democrats, um, which I think is likely to be 2028, that we have another big, beautiful field like we did in 2020, where we can sort of hash out all the different ideological generational differences in our party and may the strongest man or woman prevail. And that's what we saw in 2020. And that's, I think, frankly, what produced the strongest candidate that we had in in Joe Biden. Okay. Well, on that note, I want to thank you, Liz. The book, uh, folks, again, is Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. And um, just uh, a final note to you, uh, whenever uh, you are feeling angry or upset about something (laughs) going on in the political world, um, you can come on Skullduggery at any time and vent. We are here for you (laughs) on on that score. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yes. Thank you.